John Droz, Jr. I'm an independent physicist. I'm sort of the head of the uh, informal network called Alliance for Wise Energy Decisions. I've been involved in um, environmental matters. It's probably my first uh, uh, area where I put my toe in the water here, maybe 50 years ago. I lived in the Adirondacks of upstate New York and um, always very concerned about nature, water quality, things of that nature. So that uh, got me quite involved in uh, a variety of issues that, uh, for instance, I was concerned about who was monitoring water quality of the lakes in upstate New York, as an example, in this park, the Adirondack Park, which there's over 3,000 lakes. So uh, to me, the only reason we were there was because the water was pristine. So who was monitoring that? So the more I looked into it, the more I could see that really nobody was, even though the state agencies claimed they did. But um, the whole thing... Uh, sort of ballooned into a, a big research project. I would also assume that environmental groups like the Sierra Club, they'd be making sure that things were done to protect the environment, uh, but that wasn't the case. And of course, citizens, um, well, they have a life otherwise, and they aren't really aware of things like um, impacts of failing septic systems, as an example, on water quality. So that sort of launched uh, me into doing a lot of stuff, and that evolved over several years into getting involved with energy-related matters, which in turn uh, worked out to, I, I chose to spend a fair amount of time, not, not exclusively, they do a lot of things, but uh, an inordinate amount of time on wind energy. And the reason I do that is because, in my view, wind energy is a, um, a classic case of how things go wrong. And... Uh, we're just uh, missing the boat here in all regards. So if we can understand and then fix how we're dealing with it, with wind energy, that would make a, uh, a big difference in our energy and other and environmental policies in general. So the gist is that uh, as a scientist, I come from the perspective that science exists for one primary reason. I'm going to put it down to simple terms, and uh, that reason is that uh, science exists to give us answers to our technical problems. Okay? That's, that's it in a nutshell. So when your state or the federal government uh, is deciding about what uh, energy policy they should have, well, that's a perfect example of a technical problem. So if legislators were doing what they should be doing, they should be saying, okay, what does the science tell us here? and then build their uh, energy policy around scientific facts. But uh, that, unfortunately, does not happen. So instead, what happens is that special interest lobbyists have basically taken over the political process, and they literally uh, write out the rules and regulations for wind energy, as an example, uh, and hand it to legislators and say, look, you want to get reelected, you want support from green groups, you want to show you're progressive, blah, 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 blah. This is what you need to pass. And by and large, they do, because these people have influence. These lobbyists have money, influence, etc. And they also are very sophisticated in the stories they tell. So they tell a story about wind energy that sounds real good. In fact, is it largely is a one-sided story, not the whole story. So when citizens come to me and say, hey, uh, we're being faced with a wind project in our community here, what should we do? Well, that's something I do as an academic scientist that most other scientists don't do, and that is I deal with grassroots situations and people. So on our website, wiseenergy.org, we have two particular pages that spell out exactly what a local community needs to do if they want to uh, uh, win this fight. And by win this fight, I'm not saying necessarily they would kick the wind out, but what they should be doing is representing their own interests. Uh, my view is that uh, a, a community to commit to a wind project is a long-term uh, significant commitment, 20 years, a lot of other implications. So. Before a community goes down that path, uh, 
they need to know pretty pretty clearly and objectively what are the pros and what are the cons. Unfortunately, no one's telling them the cons. The uh, uh, lobbyists, salespeople for the wind developers are loudly proclaiming a lot of pros. Uh, some are exaggerated, some are outright untrue, some are just speculative. But uh, no one is really getting up and putting a counter side out there to say, okay, fine, here's the other side of the picture. So that's what we've tried to do, is to put some balance into this, so that when citizens, their local legislators, do some research, let's say on our website, and then they say, okay, fine, there's a couple of possible benefits here, but there's also multiple likely liabilities. And then it's up to them, once they're informed, to make a decision that makes sense for them. So that's our objective, get people educated. So when it comes to taking it to that next step, do, do your, your people that you advocate for or help with the grassroots efforts, do they come back to you and say where the choke point was or where the brick wall was that they couldn't get past? Because these, uh, these wind projects depends. are going up more and more every day. Well, um, and this is one of the interesting things to me in dealing with the public. I, I have, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but in, in, in the United States, there's approximately, I'd say, 250 communities <laughs> that uh, have or are dealing with industrial wind energy projects. Okay? And out of that, I have dealt with approximately 100. I haven't been there on site, but uh, a lot of them I have been. So I've been out all 100, but... Uh, so I talk to people. So, for instance, let's say someone from North Dakota calls me up, and they have. And they say, okay, here's our situation. And I say to them, okay, one, one of the concerns I have is that everybody is sort of doing this type of uh, fight on their own. The fact is, if there are 250 other communities that have already been down this path that you're embarking on, wouldn't you think it'd be wise for you to uh, learn what worked and what didn't work in these other communities? Well, they say generally, well, yeah. And I said, okay, that's the service I'm providing for you. Uh, I'm trying to get you to cut to the chase here because uh, I've personally been involved with approximately 100, so I know exactly what has worked and what has not worked. And so here it is. And so I spell out to them. I said, if you want to take the path that's the most successful path, here's what you need to do. Well, you would think that uh, that would be a black and white matter and they would go about doing that, no questions asked. But people being people, unfortunately, that's not the case. A lot of times I get answers like they say, well, all right, uh, that, that might have worked in New York State here, but uh, it's not going to work in North Dakota. <laughs> that, that, that just makes no sense whatsoever because the situation you have in North Dakota, yes, there's some variations between states, but effectively 95% of it's the same. So you're talking about the 5% that's different. Uh, the arguments that the wind developer is using for your local legislators, et cetera, the issues that you're going to have as a community, et cetera, they're all the same. They're not different between what happens in New York or Massachusetts or Ohio or North Carolina. They're not. So if you uh, take advantage of these things here, this is what you can do. But a surprising number of people, despite hearing all that information, those facts, say, well, our situation is different, and uh, we're going to go our own way here. Well, okay, fine. <laughs> it's, it's no uh, skin off my nose here if you end up with a wind project, and that's almost always what happens. It, subsequently, I hear a couple months later, they say, well, unfortunately, it didn't work out. Uh, maybe we should have listened to what you had to say. Well... Like I say, I'm, I'm doing this free. I'm not going to beat anybody over the head with it. If they think they know better from somebody who is a, a, a physicist who's been doing this for 25 years, who's been involved with 100 communities, and they think they know better than I do, I don't know what to tell you. But a surprising number of people do do that. So that, that's the number one issue is that people want to do it their own way and yes. they're just looking yes. for a... a, a plug-and-play turnkey template, and what you're saying is that it takes some work. Well, we are offering a plug-and-play turnkey no, but, template. No, but, but, but it takes some work. 
because it, it takes different well, it d- takes different work, levels yeah. and counties and everything. Um, There's no non-work uh, option here. Yeah, right. you're fighting a very sophisticated opponent here, and there's some work, but we've we've minimized this work here to be quite small, quite frankly, quite small. I want to ask you about one of the things that I've said for years that one of my you're, you're in North Dakota, you said, right? Is that... uh, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. We have uh, North Dakota, Minnesota, South Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, is where the the radio broadcast is but of course on the internet you know it's all over the world um one of the issues that we've said for quite a long time on wind energy is is there doesn't seem to be a reclamation program in place is there is is there any advancements on that do you you know have you kept up with that because to me that would seem like one of the big issues right there is that who's going to take these down and when and how are you going to dispose of them and, and that sort of thing Number one, none of the modern turbines we're talking about, and I mean modern, they'd be uh, 350 feet up. Right now they're proposing and uh, building 600 feet turbines. So no, no turbines in that, what I'm calling modern, class have ever been decommissioned. There have been turbines decommissioned, but they've been smaller versions. No one has ever decommissioned a 600-foot turbine or a 500-foot turbine or a 400-foot turbine in the world, to my knowledge. Okay? So point number one is no one can uh, say specifically what what the cost is going to be, what the implications are going to be, et cetera. No one. Well, the wind industry, of course, tries to poo-poo all this and say, well, hey, you, you can uh, take these down here and uh, recycle materials, all this kind of other bullshit here. Uh, Yes, that uh, has, has, has no basis in fact. So that's number one. Number two, uh, this is again where uh, our objective when we're trying to talk to a community is that they need to get a local ordinance passed that uh, is protective. It protects the health, safety, and welfare of their citizens. And we identify, identify five different elements that need to be in that ordinance. And this is all spelled on our website the specifics of it. In fact, we have a model ordinance on our website, so they don't even have to write it. I'm saying we've made this as easy as possible. All they have to do is take change a few words in it and make it applicable for North Dakota, Minnesota, wherever. But the five items, uh, one of the five items is decommissioning. So in our model ordinance, we have the words, specific words, legal words, that ought to be uh, incorporated into a local ordinance if you want to do an adequate job of protecting the public. Whether people do that or not, that's up to them, but the words are right there. Dr. John Droz, the Alliance for Wise Energy Decisions. Uh, That's the website as well. We'll have links, of course, at the crudelife.com. Well, the website is wiseenergy.org. Yeah. Wise Energy. Alliance for Wise Energy energy Decisions, but the website is wiseenergy.org. Okay. Yes. Uh, Yes. Talk to me a little bit about some of the other science behind when it comes to wind energy. Another one of the issues I I hear is um, the birds, the bats, the bees, the wildlife. Uh, There's noise pollution is another one, for example. Uh, is that where the wellness stuff comes in with the local ordinances? You mentioned about the health and safety and the wellness part of the local ordinance. Is that yeah. from, from a noise pollution standpoint? or Talk to me a little bit more about that. Well, there's several aspects uh, of it. In fact, um, since, since uh, the, uh, the universal strategy when a wind project comes to town, whether it's a local community in North Dakota or a local community in North Carolina, is the same. They have actually a choreographed pitch that they use. So you'd find it fascinating if you're listening to a wind developer giving a pitch in Maine or New Mexico or North Carolina or North Dakota, you'd be astounded that the words they're using are almost verbatim the same. That's because these people are very well choreographed to know what to say and what not to say. So their number one focus when they come to a community is that this project will bring 
local economic benefits to the community. And the main uh, arguments for that they're making are, number one, that uh, there will be property taxes that the community will get. Number two, there will be uh, lease payments that uh, certain landowners will get. Number three, there will be some employment, other type of things on the construction part and a small amount uh, in the operations part. So we add up those three things. Those are basically the local financial benefits. Now, typically, depending on the number of turbines, but let's say it's a 100, 100 turbine project, maybe round number, typically that will result in uh, an economic benefit, a community economic benefit, somewhere in the range between $1 and $2 million a year. Okay? So then they, of course, multiply it by assuming it's going to be a 20-year project, which, again, is unproven, not guaranteed. Let's say it's uh, $1.5 million a year, so they multiply it by 20 and say, okay, this is a $30 million benefit coming to your rural North Dakota community. Well, right off the bat, how many, how, how many other uh, $30 million uh, opportunities have been proposed to that rural community in the last 50 years? Zero. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I mean, this, this is obviously what's intended to get these people's attention. So local legislators are saying, oh my God, a $30 million deal here? Uh, we've never had anything remotely like this here. Where do I sign? That's, that's, their, that's their whole idea. They want to wave this money in front of them. Okay, so on our website, though, uh, on a page called Key Documents, we have a very important uh, document that is... Uh, local financial realities. And what we've done in that document is we've identified the fact that if we look at independent studies by, I'm sorry, studies done by independent experts, uh, there's at least 10 areas where these wind projects will have a financial liability, a local financial liability. So you mentioned some of them. So one would be, let's say, to bats. I don't say birds, because unfortunately killing birds isn't a financial liability. So if they kill five eagles a year, as an example, or 10,000 sparrows, unfortunately there is no economic correlation to what that amounts to. But on the other hand, bats do have a significant economic value. Significant. Significant. For a variety of reasons. Uh, so that's one of the things that's explained on our website on this document, the 10, uh, the local economics 101, that's what the document title on the key documents page. And it goes through each of these 10 different areas. So one of the areas is agricultural losses. So in your area, that should be of concern. So agricultural losses have been well documented that wind turbines will cause agricultural losses in a community. Well, why is that? Well, there's actually three different reasons why, but just to keep this short here, one of the reasons why is because of bats. And what most, most people probably look at bats as being icky, maybe they are. But the fact is that bats, bats do several beneficial things. One of the beneficial things they do is that they eat a prodigious amount of insects. I mean, a single bat can eat something like a thousand insects an hour. I mean, a pretty substantial amount. I, I read it was 10,000 mosquitoes a day in one of my little kid manuals yes, back in the okay. day. So, yeah. yeah. Yes, yes, something like that. Yes, that's what I'm saying. So uh, the fact is that wind turbines will come, when they're in the community, they will kill bats. There's been nothing the wind turbine developers have been able to come up with to stop it. Uh, for instance, they've tried uh, radar, they've tried noise, they've tried all sorts of things, but unfortunately none of it has worked. None of it has worked. They're going to kill a substantial number of bats, you know, depending on how many bats you have there in the first place. But there's going to be a substantial number of bats killed. And the impact of that is, in this one area, is that uh, because uh, this is a part of the ecosystem that's now taken out here, a natural predator for insects is being taken out of the system, that you're going to find that there's going to be a substantial increase in the insect population. Substantial. And what independent scientists have done, one of the studies cited on our page there is four PhDs, 
concluded that this is going to result in fairly substantial crop yield losses because of the increase in insects. And what they did, which was amazing, they, they have actually a number they calculated for every single county in the United States. I wonder where you are in North Dakota. They have a number that they put there as an estimate as to how much agricultural loss there will be for just due to uh, uh, turbines killing bats. If you want to give me, a, if you have a case of a particular wind project you're aware of and you know the county, I'll tell you an example number. But it's a substantial number. So that's one thing is an example. Okay. Uh, but another effect of bats is because of the insects is that uh, mosquitoes, for instance, are known to carry a variety of diseases, whether it's eastern equine encephalitis or Zika or whatever. There's a wide variety of diseases that these insects carry besides, and bats are there to uh, keep their levels down. So there's going to be human health impact because of bats being killed. Now, as far as the, the noise goes, uh, the, the biggest health adverse uh, consequence has been documented to be infrasound. And infrasound is actually sound you don't hear. I don't know if we can go into that, but uh, most people think of sound, they think of acoustical sound, in other words, noise you actually hear. But sound is actually energy waves. I told you this in my physics hat here now. Sound is an energy wave. So we, uh, energy, we're bombarded by these energy waves, whether we know it or not. Our ears only selectively pick up a certain range of waves. So there's sounds that are below our hearing, and there are sounds that are above our hearing. Like, for instance, a dog whistle is a sound above. That's ultrasound. Uh, a dog can hear it because they have a different hearing range of their ears. The people can't. But uh, what's been shown scientifically to be problematic is the real low frequencies. That's infrasound. That's the sound below our ability to hear it. So even though that's why it's a joke when people say, well, I, I, I went by a wind project here and I couldn't hear an awful lot. <laughs> what you're trying to listen for is things you can't hear. So what the hell does that say? <laughs> you can't hear uh, infrasound anyways, no matter how close you are or not from it, because it's not, it's not hearable by the human ear. Now, if you had a meter or something, you could show it there. Uh, but this has been well documented to be very problematic. So another page on our website is we have over 25 studies listed by independent experts here, PhDs, MDs, about the problematic consequences of infrasound. You need to have any further assurance of the problem of it. Uh, I can assure tell you all one other thing, and that is the U.S. military has been looking at infrasound for several years to try to weaponize it. They realize how, how, how much uh, harm it causes, so they are literally, this is secretive, but they are literally trying to make a weapon to use infrasound. So that when they point and shoot this weapon at their opponents, these people will be disabled, literally, not killed, but disabled, uh, by this infrasound machine. Well, they haven't been able to perfect that yet because so far one of the big problems is how do you protect the people who are shooting the gun? Stuff like that. But uh, it's proven to be, infrasound is proven to be extremely harmful. And it's proven that in, uh, wind turbines give off infrasound. So, so that's the type of thing, again, that needs to be properly specified in the local ordinance. And, and that that's a really good example is kind of the infras infrasound and, you know, even the at night, the things that are happening and the, and the ripples of um, the impacts to where the next level of sophistication is, you know, trying to get these things passed, whether it be at a local level or a state level. How much of energy and politics and environment has, has become one? They seem to be really intermingled. We've, we've said for a long time on our program, five years now, that the uh, politicians have essentially become the PR spokespeople for the energy industry over the past couple of years. And it seems like it might be a little bit more advanced than that. But what, what are your thoughts on the relationship between the state and energy and trying to get some of these, these environmental issues passed when it comes to dealing with the state and energy? 
Okay. Well, you're talking about a couple different things. Yeah. You're talking on the state level. Uh, the state states typically are, uh, as I said earlier, the states typically, uh, legislators are run by lobbyists. So the problem is none of these lobbyists are there to represent the interest of citizens. They're there to represent their clients who are like wind developers and stuff like that. So citizens are lost in the shuffle here. So if citizens want to have their uh, rights represented on the state, they need to be in the fray here and uh, not allow these quote-unquote stakeholders who are just lobbyists to take over the whole process. But in most states here, uh, they still have the authority to do things on a local level. So lots of times it's easier to do that. And so what I'm saying, it's a lot easier, for instance, if, if, if in your, every state's different. Some, it's, these laws are passed by towns, some are passed by counties. What is it in North Dakota? I forgot. Is it a county level? Or we have county? counties, yeah. Okay, fine. So it's a lot easier for a citizen to deal with uh, their local county commissioners uh, than, than it is a state legislator. So you just have to understand where the county uh, legislator is coming from. The county legislator, as I said, is being approached by a business saying, we're going to give you $30 million over the next 20 years. So my, my point is to these people who've asked me, said, if you allow that uh, uh, argument to stand unchallenged, you're going to lose. So if you go in and say, well, yes, but uh, what about all the eagles and birds that are going to get killed? Well, your, your commissioners are saying to themselves, they might not say it to you publicly, they're saying to themselves, okay, First of all, I don't know where these birds and stuff are going to be killed, but even if we do kill 10 eagles and whatever, um, I, why should I throw out a $30 million deal? It makes no sense. And the same thing, uh, if you go through any of the other litany of things, if there's property devaluation or there's health effects, the commissioners are going to say, that's too bad, I, I don't like to have that happen, but uh, that's not enough to pass up a $30 million deal. So that's why we've explained on our website and given them a template to say, you need to come up with uh, the net economic impact to your community here because the $30 million is just one side of the equation. It's just the benefit. No one is looking at the negative side, the, the liabilities. No one in the state, no one in your county is looking at that. So it's up to citizens to do that. And we spelled it out exactly how to do that. But what I'm saying is that in... I'm not aware of a single case where citizens did this properly that they weren't able to show that the liabilities actually exceeded the benefits. So in other words, if they do a proper job with this calculation, per our website where we spelled everything out, they're probably going to conclude that the economic cost to the local community of this wind project, theoretical wind project, is $50 million a year. Okay. $50 million of liabilities, $30 million of benefits. So that's what really should be uh, uh, the, the point of comparison. In other words, this is a net $20 million a year loser. But the question is, these citizens don't do that. They do think, not, some do, but they instead go up and argue about birds and things of that nature, which is just foolish. They have no understanding uh, because... That's not a winning argument to just say, well, it's wrong to be killing birds or it's wrong to be devaluing property. Sure it is, but you've got to make an argument these people are going to understand, and what they understand is the numbers, and we've made it very clear that the numbers in almost every case we've seen are in your favor. So if you're able to show in a report that is cited with over 100 citations from independent studies that this is this project is going to be a net economic liability, you have an exceptionally good chance of winning the fight. If you do it any other way, your chances are next to zero. That's it. So it comes down to say, how do you get these people to pass a proper ordinance? The proper ordinance is only going to be passed if they understand what the true economics are. If they think that this is a financial windfall to them, they're not likely to pass an ordinance that's going to throw a wrench into the process. On the other hand, if it's been made clear to them that this project is an economic liability, they're going to be much more receptive to passing a proper ordinance. So let's take that and, and flip it around and look at what happened in Colorado. There, it seemed like they did the reverse of that. 
to where they didn't they, they don't care about the economic uh, issues that come with banning the uh, fossil fuel industry in Colorado or not banning it, but putting setbacks that essentially put a soft ban on it. Uh, have you been following well, Colorado and what's been going on with, there uh, with the fossil I, fuels? I a lot of places, but uh, their, their, their argument there is, is that uh, there's a bigger issue involved here, and that is global warming. And so they can put any type of number on the global warming thing and say, hey, we're saving the planet. So <laughs> once, once, you've, once you've allowed them to make that claim, there's no, there's no dollar amount you're going to be able to save that says, well, okay, but this isn't uh, justified. They're saying, well, we're going to be out of existence. We're going to die. So... We need to have. This is the a lot of stupid things. To to me, this is the sticky wicket that has kind of been created. That it seems if you, if you go at if if you try to stick up for say a fossil fuel, you're 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 at a loss right there. You no, know, whether it's economics or whether it's the you know cleanness of natural gas compared to you know what it was 150 years ago, the evolution of decarbonizing. Uh, it just seems like that is, they've got an answer on either side of it, economics or saving, you know, the planet type of a thing. Um, well, I don't think that's true. Uh, they, they have claims, they say. They claims, like they yeah. Claims about, uh, but uh, I, don't, I don't think that's, that's really true. Uh, I, I haven't seen any of the science behind it, and that's where I'm going with the next question, which is we talked a little bit about this yesterday, and this was one of the things we disagreed on, which was I call it con- – consensus science i believe you called it political science was the word that you you uh, compared okay, before you ask me a question let me just ask one yeah. are you familiar with alex epstein yeah yeah somewhat yeah he's he talks about the seen some of his videos m- morality case for fossil fuels well that's his book but yeah. uh, he, he's got some outstanding videos where he is taking on uh, people who are uh, arguing against fossil fuels here. For instance, he just had a video that was in my newsletter today where he was taking on uh, one of the Kennedys who was against fossil fuels. So mm-hmm. I, th- I think what I'm saying is his. if you want to have had some arguments to defend fossil fuels, if you look at some of his videos here, he's done an outstanding job of doing that. Sure, but from a... Oh, go ahead. Well, another one, my prior... Uh, uh, newsletter was a speech just made uh, two weeks ago by the Kentucky governor. Uh, it was an outstanding talk, and it was all about why fossil fuels were a good thing. And he made this to a, an energy conference, you know, attended by anti-fossil fuel people, uh, Southeastern en- Energy Conference, a very big conference. Uh, he went on for about 15, 20 minutes about why fossil fuels were a good thing. So if you look at, I sent you two newsletters, if you just look at the last not today's, but the prior newsletter, you'll see his talk there. Uh, he, again, makes some outstanding points here about in defense of fossil fuels. So if you look at some of the stuff I'm sending out here, there are legitimate arguments against these lobbyists who are, by and large, saying a lot of stuff that both did again. <laughs> Just not true. They're making claims. For instance, to say that uh, wind energy, as an example, will replace coal is a lie. It's a technical lie. It's impossible. That will never happen. It's technically impossible for that to happen. So there's no there's no equivalency because that's how they make it. They say, well, if we had one megawatt of coal versus uh, one megawatt of wind energy, look at the difference. Well, there's no such thing. It's, it doesn't exist. They're they're assuming that the, their audience is technically illiterate, and most people are. Uh, so they make claims like this here that are totally false. Totally well- false. And, and that, that's where I'm coming from. It seems like that when it comes to something deemed green, which would be wind and solar in our example, versus a fossil fuel, they can use a consensus science to whatever they want, whether it's economics or um, te- you know, science. Well, consensus science doesn't support what they're saying, so it doesn't support that. Well, they there say no consensus science. They say well, all the time. You want to say consensus. They may say consensus science. Uh, believes in global warming, which is disputable, but consensus scientists have never said that wind energy uh, will save a substantial amount of energy over fossil fuels. Never. There's no consensus of science on that that particular point. That's the point you're talking about. 
So there's no consensus on that whatsoever. In fact, there's no scientific study that concludes that wind energy saves any consequential amount of CO2. None. Zero. Zero. How, how does the narrative get so blown up then? Because they're lobbyists. They're all about marketing. <laughs> they're clever marketers. That's their whole job. Spin. Number yeah. one. Number two is they are taking advantage of the fact that the public is technically ignorant. So they know they can get away with saying all sorts of stuff because 99% of the people who are listening have no idea that they're being lied to. And the few that do, uh, most of them aren't likely to speak up. So that's one of the things I'm trying to do. Is I'm, I'm trying to educate people about what the realities are. So I'm, I'm in sort of a, a minority position here, obviously, but that's what I'm trying to tell you the facts. The facts are... There has never been a scientific study any place in the world that has concluded that wind energy saves any consequential amount of CO2. Fact number two is there have been independent studies by independent scientists that have concluded that gas, gas now, fossil fuel, can save more CO2 than wind energy does. Now you think about that for a minute. I know I've been, I'm not aware of that exactly, but... Um... Well, that's a big deal. It's saying fossil fuels produce less CO2 than wind. I've made the told you that? I've made the argument that the fossil fuel industry is doing more right now for the planet than most environmentalists. They're actually making well, major investments trying to decarbonize and plant trees and do everything else, whereas everyone else seems to be pointing a lot of fingers. Well, actually, the real benefits of fossil fuels are a lot of other ways than these environmental things. They're about... Why do you think the United States is a, uh, the number one country in the world? Why do we have the most advanced civilization in the world? Uh, why do we have the best uh, in almost everything in the world here? By and large, it's because of fossil fuels. You go to the, a place in Africa, as an example, a third world country, the number one difference between the United States and them is the availability of electricity, of low-cost, reliable electricity. Well... Once you have, once you don't have low-cost reliable, you're you're effectively an agrarian society that is dependent on uh, I don't know horses and uh, human labor, and your your heat comes from uh, burning dung, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's it's a, a a radical existence difference, and that's really what these people are attacking. They've effectively acknowledged that they're against uh, America. They're against uh, capitalism. They're against uh, what Bill McKibben calls is modernity. You know who Bill McKibben is? Not familiar with the name. Well, he's the number one guy behind all of this. The number one person. He is the head of the worldwide environmental movement. The head guy. What Bill McKibben says, the Sierra Club does. Greenpeace does, etc. He's the leader. So he lives in Vermont. He went to Harvard. His degree is in journalism. So just think about that. Mm -hmm. Here is a guy that's giving lectures. He's written multiple books about uh, climate change, et cetera, et cetera, very technical topics. He has zero scientific credentials. Zero. He's a journalist. And yet he's the spokesperson for the environmental movement worldwide about things like climate change. Zero scientific credentials. But he's a marketer, and he's a... Uh, a good talk and all, but interestingly, he was one of the people that uh, Alex Epstein debated. And uh, so Alex has taken on some of these people uh, pretty well. Yeah, that one you were referring to was in uh, Boulder, Colorado the other night with uh, John uh, F. Kennedy Jr. Might, okay, it might have been, yes. I yeah. forgot where it was. Yes, I think it was, yes. Yeah, well, and, and like you said, they've been having some issues there with the governor and some, uh, uh, they called it the Colorado right, blueprint is what they, what, I, what they called it. Well, Colorado is not the worst. New York is the worst. They've passed, uh, their energy thing here. It's the worst of the whole country. It's, it's horrifically bad. California. Worse than California. California. Yeah. Worse than California. They're in a competition. It's literally a race to the bottom. So a couple months ago, New York state passed a law here basically saying that they're going to prohibit Everything that has anything to do with fossil fuels here over the next 20 years. Everything. So you won't have, be able to have a gas stove. You won't be able to have a, a charcoal grill that burns gas. Uh, you won't, uh, everything. Won't be have a fossil fuel car. Everything. 
course, it's just completely absurd. But it's this is all for virtue signaling and whatever. The, th- the thing that strikes me is is really bizarre and weird in this whole thing. Besides the fact that many of our leaders are the ones pushing this movement, is that you know th- there was a natural progression happening anyway. But when when you try to predict the future the way they are, that first of all is bizarre to me the way that they would try to predict the future and then secondly is how much money they attach to it and rules and regulations and then when it actually doesn't happen it seems like they spend more time giving excuses why it didn't happen but they don't repel any or repeal anything or go back it's it's just it keeps going this way and that's the part that scares me is that things are happening really fast almost like a crash course to where well it is happening fast and that's why i'm giving you my two cents here from a 30,000-foot view. You said you go to 5,000. I'm going to 30,000-foot view. Their real objective here is to bring America down. And I don't say that lightly. If you look at the books, for instance, that Bill McKibben has written as an example, he has said the, the problem here is modernity. Well, that's a very broad thing. So he asked an interesting question in one of his books, and that is, Are people happier today, let's say in the United States, are they happier today than they were 100 years ago? What do you think? That would be hard to gauge. I mean, I would say most people would be happier 100 years ago, but they'd say today that they're happier. Well, that's that's part of it. So he builds his case on that. His contention is they were much happier 100-plus years ago. The first problem is that... uh, it's very difficult to quantify happiness anyways. <laughs> Second problem is there's no evidence of any proper survey of a people 100 plus years ago done. So how do we know? Well, we don't know. But this is how these people are. He's saying they're happier. So then, then he just concludes they're happier. They were happier. And then he goes on to say, well, why is that? And then he said, well, the problem is that uh, modernity is really making us unhappy. Well, he doesn't say materialism, he says modernity. But there's some correlation with that, and there's some truth to that. I mean, the fact that a person has four cars doesn't make them happier than if they had one car, as an example. The fact that they have a 10,000-square-foot house doesn't make them happier than if they had a 2,000-square-foot house, as an example. Right? Uh, So he sort of builds on that, but he calls it modernity. But basically, he's against modernity, and he's saying... How did modernity come about was fossil fuels. They made all this happen. And that's one of the reasons they're against that. Now, he knows that uh, when he originally did this, that he couldn't go after fossil fuels directly. Now they are. But originally he didn't because some of these books are 10, 20 years old. He then said, well, we need to attack uh, a byproduct of fossil fuels. And the byproduct they picked was CO2. This is all a plan here. This wasn't an accident. And they pick CO2 because, number one, it's it's invisible. Number two, it's it's everybody. Number three, uh, the average citizen, 99% of them, have no idea about anything about chemical composition of the air. Just ask, ask the average person how much of the atmosphere is CO2, as an example. How many people do you think they're going to know? Less than 1%. Yes, but how many people do we actually know? Oh, I, I couldn't even... Well, very few, because <laughs> all they hear about CO2 this, CO2 that, it's, uh, the impression is that it's a substantial amount. And then you say, okay, it's 0.4%, but uh, if you say, okay, how, how much of that CO2, that little tiny amount, is man-made, how much do you think that is? 40%. Well, it's, it's even less than that. It is, okay. So you keep going down here to say, oh, my God, I mean, how, how, does, how does this all make sense? Well, it doesn't make sense. I, I'm sure you're on a time limit here, but we could go on for a long time. But the bottom line is these people, if you want to find out what they're trying to do, you look at Bill McKibben because he's the leader of the worldwide environmental movement. It's as simple as that. He's well, their leader. You, you brought up something that they did talk about in that uh, Epstein-JFK Jr., uh, debate or conversation or whatever they want to call it in Boulder the other night, which was crony capitalism. And okay. I've said for probably four years now on on this program, maybe five, whatever, 
that it seemed to me that the oil and gas industry was like the last bastion for capitalism, that every other industry seemed to be so subsidized or regulated that this was the only one left and it's barely hanging on. And then now I'm seeing all this crony capitalism talk starting to come up a little bit. Your 30,000 foot view of bring America down. That was the first thing I thought of was those examples. Um, your, your thought about that, about how the crony capitalism seems to be getting a little bit more play now in the media. Well, they've, they've tried to demonize everything that's good about uh, the country and so forth. I mean, that's why they're attacking uh, President Trump, because he's he's one of the few people that's calling a spade a spade, and they don't like that. So they're going to try to take him down, obviously. But uh, they don't. just the fact that they stick that adjective in front of it, crony, uh, that's, that's a subjective opinion here. There's no such thing as crony capitalism per se. There's good and bad parts of any type of system. So what, what would they rather have, a Stalinistic uh, political system or Nazis or something else? I mean, you know, really. I mean, all things considered, capitalism has its good and bad points. Sure, there's abuses of it. Sure. So the idea is we need to take the good and work on fixing the bad. But they're not trying to do that. They're trying to throw out the whole thing. Basically, what these people are working towards, in my opinion, uh, if you look at the 30,000-foot view here, is that they are actually promoting communism. Uh, they're saying socialism at the moment here, but socialism is just next door to communism. So once once we get bought into socialism, it'll then evolve all of a sudden into communism. But basically, that's what they're doing. I don't know if you've seen them, either the movies here about uh, grinding America down. Have you seen it? I have not, no. Okay, well, you ought to watch that. I can send you the, uh, there's, there's two two movies. Uh, they're done by uh, Curtis Bowers. He's uh, an Idaho, um, well, he was an Idaho state representative. But uh, in, in my view, his his films here are, are the most accurate, spot-on explanation of what's actually going on. He's completely on target. Let's talk about the kind of wrap it up here a little bit about some of the economics of wind energy. The bottom line, then, if you will, uh, circling back to wind energy, you know, you mentioned essentially you, know, you take a megawatt of coal away. It's not that easy to replace a megawatt of wind is how I heard it. Um, well, I'm saying it's impossible. You cannot replace. <laughs> there you go. It's impossible. Yeah. You cannot replace a megawatt of coal with any amount of wind, whether it's 10 megawatts, 100 megawatts, a million megawatts. It will not replace what a megawatt of coal will produce because a megawatt of coal can produce uh, dependable electricity 24-7. Wind is technically impossible to do that. So uh, no matter how many you have, so if you had a million megawatts of wind energy, it could not replicate what a one megawatt coal plant would, would do. Impossible. So in fighting oh, that, the, the economics, what, what's your best suggestion when it comes to the bottom line of wind economics? Well, there's a couple of economic uh, fights here. I was talking mostly about local economics because I think that's where the fight is the most winnable. And when a local community of North Dakota, Minnesota, or wherever is fighting this, they need to fight it on what is the economic impact, the net economic impact of this wind project to our community. That is a winning tactic. Now, there's other economics involved besides, for instance, ratepayer economics. That's a completely different economic. Wind energy has been dishonestly uh, portrayed as that as well. Keep saying you see things all the time. It's it's competitive with uh, you know some fossil fuels. That, that's totally not true. The the, the when a, a full accounting for wind energy is uh, accurately tabulated, wind energy is probably four to five times the amount of conventional electricity sources. But they never fully tabulate, for instance. So, for instance, wind energy doesn't exist without an augmenting source on on the grid here, and that's typically gas. So there's no such thing as wind by itself. It's a wind plus gas package. So when they're giving the cost for wind, they should, by rights, if they're being honest, include what the cost of the gas augmentation is. But they don't do that. The second factor is wind requires a significant amount more transmission uh, cost than typical 
other type of sources. So, for instance, if you had a gigawatt nuclear facility, as an example, the transmission cost from that is versus a gigawatt of uh, wind energy, it'd be five times the cost. But even uh, the United States uh, EIA here doesn't uh, doesn't take that into account. They say it's all the same. Well, that's just not true. It's not true. Wind has significantly higher transmission costs, so that should be built into their cost. When they're giving you a quote, somebody is paying for those transmission lines. They use a bunch of other excuses to hide it, say, well, you needed upgrade anyways, and blah, 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 all sorts of other things here. That's just baloney. It's just baloney. So the bottom line is, on a repair perspective, wind is typically four to five times the cost of conventional electricity. So it's a loser on a repair. It's a loser on a local cost. As far as its net benefits, as far as a country goes, I mean, well, what would the net benefits be? Uh, there's no net benefits as far as jobs, as far as anything, uh, because of what it's uh, trying to replace here is actually more. They say, well, okay, there's more jobs here. Well, that's another one of these stupid things here. It, it's been shown that to produce uh, one gigawatt of uh, wind energy, it takes five times or some, seven times, I think it is, the amount of jobs that it does if you have one gigawatt done by fossil fuels. So how is that a good thing to say something has more job required to produce it? No, it would be if you had two things and say I have A and B and A is less job required to, to produce it than B is, which do you think would be better? Obviously, you'd say the one that has the less jobs. Why would you pick something that has more that's more labor intensive? Again, they're trying to fool people because they know they're technically illiterate. Well, I think there's no, there's no benefit here. Once, once I started noticing they were incorporating the feeling into science and energy, it it was a tough tough go. I mean, it's um, you started. Well, there is no feeling incorporated in science. They may say they, things like that, but science is, you know, has they, nothing to do with values or things of that nature. Science is on the facts. I, I believe you. Uh, science should be sterile. Science should be, you t take emotion out. But they've done a very good job of, of making the environment and the science behind the environment, be, be, you know, have feeling. Because it's very easy to go outside and feel about the environment. It's very easy for that. Um, well, we, we have to wrap up your uh, website, wiseenergy.org. Go, go ahead, give yourself a little plug. Uh, uh, again, how you help people, how you keep the lights on, that sort of thing. I do all this for free, so that's the number one thing here. So this isn't any solicitation. I'm here to give people free help. So we have three sources of help. One is the website, wiseenergy.org, tremendous resource. Number two, we have a, a newsletter that comes out every two or three weeks. You just got one today, and the idea that supplements the uh, website because there's a lot of new studies and stuff coming out continually. So this is the latest uh, material that you're going to find any place in the world. Number three is for communities that are pulling their own weight, trying to do their best. I'm willing to speak to them on the phone or answer emails and stuff like that to give them some personal help here. As long as they're pulling their weight, I'm willing to assist.